verses. All right, Luke 23. Let's read through the chapter and then we'll pray. Uh, Getting started a couple minutes early. Look at that. (laughs) All right, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is the Christ, the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one of them, or one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, and who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, as they led him away, They laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and the women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, 
what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking up. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is, if he is the Messiah, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him soured wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we received the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, He glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Shabbat, the Sabbath, drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee, followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on Shabbat, they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. Let's pray. Father, as we spend some time meditating on um, this portion of history, 
for many of us, a lot of these these parts are very familiar. We've heard them many times for many years. And I pray that um, you would breathe life into us through your word once more and that you would help us to see and appreciate with fresh understanding the things that are happening here. For they have indeed changed the course of history because you, O merciful God, you have sent Jesus to accomplish death for us. Lord, would you teach us to lean on you, (laughs) to depend on you, I pray. Lead us, Lord. We want to follow you, and we want to do it together. Would you help us to do it in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 All right, guys, back up with me at the beginning of chapter 23. Um, As we go through this, uh, there are a couple other places I want to uh, reference and read couple other places in the scriptures. But obviously the central focus here of this part of, of our um, text is is the actual uh, events at the crucifixion itself. Uh, the stage has been set with the betrayal. I remember the night before Jesus has the Passover dinner. He celebrates Passover with his disciples. He tells them that one of them is going to betray them. Um, Judas leaves dinner. And then they all leave eventually, and they go up to the Mount of Olives, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays in agony. And then a crowd, uh, at least relatively small crowd, probably shows up. And um, because they were wanting to arrest him apart from the larger crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, So uh, they show up being led by Judas. Um, Judas betrays Jesus uh, with a kiss, so they know exactly which one of them it was who was Jesus. They take him and they uh, have a mock trial at first. And the reason I say that is that uh, Jewish law forbid uh, the leaders in Israel from having a trial at nighttime. So they had to wait until the next day to have an official trial. So what they did at first was they had sort of this mock trial at the um, uh, before the high priest um, and the leaders in Israel. Uh, and they tried to find false witnesses who would agree because in order for them to put somebody to death, according to Moses, they had to have two or three witnesses. We talked about that a little bit before. So they tried to find that. They couldn't really find anything that worked out, at least according to their liking, according <laughs> enough for them to justify wanting to murder Jesus. Right? Isn't that amazing? They, they just couldn't find enough people to lie about him uh, in agreement for their stories to agree enough for them to feel justified in putting Jesus to death because that's what they wanted to do. Right? So while they were talking to him, though, Jesus told them that they would see the Son of Man um, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And they, when they heard that, they said, we don't even need any more witnesses. We're the witnesses of his blasphemy now, right? Because they were, according to Moses, they could put him to death for blasphemy. So they accepted that as the thing now that they're going to put him to death for. They had to wait till the next morning, though, in order to have an official trial in front of the leaders of Israel. And then he would be delivered into the hands of those who could put him to death. At this time, remember, Israel was under the authority of Rome, and Rome had sort of officially, unofficially stripped them of the right for them to execute capital punishment 
for them to uh, kill someone, uh, uh, to execute somebody, uh, that right, if we can call it that, had been taken from them, uh, and they were then responsible to Rome, right? So they had to have the authority of the Roman leaders in the area, otherwise uh, it would cause further dissension, further problems for them. So now that's where we pick up our story. The whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to, Pilate was the Roman uh, leader in the area at the time. So they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is really funny, right? Because when they brought the coin to him, trying to trick him and, and catch him in something, he goes, whose picture is that? Caesar? Then give it to Caesar. <laughs> you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now they're accusing him of, of telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, they're trying to provoke the Roman leadership. You get that, right? You kind of hopefully understand that, right? They're trying to provoke Pilate to get him to, to agree to put Jesus to death. So uh, he's perverting the nation, they said, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is the Messiah, and they identified this as a king. I like that. The Messiah is not just the Messiah, and they know that. The Messiah is a king. <laughs> the Messiah was was promised to be a king, and they know that. So um, he said that he is the, the Messiah, a king. Now, this, it seems, gets Pilate's attention because there is no king but Caesar, <laughs> right? And so now when they say this guy is claiming to be king, uh, this could, of course, cause problems if he's going to mount a military rebellion against the Roman occupation. Then him claiming to be a king, if he had armies to support him, because that's how kings took and kept power, was by their armies <laughs> uh, that they had conscripted. Uh, so um, this gets Pilate's attention. Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him. And said, it is as you say, or simply you said it. Uh, so Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Apparently Pilate isn't bothered <laughs> right, by Jesus or by his response. He's like, I don't <laughs> like, I don't know what this guy's deal is. Maybe he's a little out there, you know, out of it. Maybe he's crazy or something. I don't know. But Pilate isn't bothered by uh, Jesus, not even in the slightest at this point. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce. Uh, I love that phrase. They were the more fierce. <laughs> Saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now they mention Galilee in their accusations against Jesus. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, this again gets his attention. His ears perk up. Because there's someone else who has jurisdiction in Galilee. That's that northern part in Israel. Okay, there was Galilee and then Samaria in the middle and then Judea down at the bottom. Okay, so in the northern part, uh, this was under Herod's jurisdiction. This is not Herod the Great who was Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. This is one of his, uh, one of his um, children. So um, when Herod heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod had traveled to Jerusalem very likely because of the Feast of Passover. A lot of the men in the area traveled to Jerusalem. It's possible that's why, but we don't know why, and nor does it really matter. The fact is, he had traveled to uh, Jerusalem at the same time. So, um, verse 8, now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Herod was looking at Jesus as some random traveling teacher who worked miracles, and he wanted to see some sort of miracle. He wanted to see a sign, 
right? He wanted to see a sideshow, right? He wanted Jesus to be, uh, he wanted Jesus to be like a, uh, like a, a, a circus attraction, basically. He, he just wanted to see him do some miracle because he had heard stories about Jesus. Herod was the person who was the leader in Galilee up in the north, and Jesus had been doing most of the, his time in ministry, doing miracles and healing and all of that. Most of it was done up north. That's where his base was in Capernaum. Okay. He traveled several times down to Jerusalem, several times a year, probably at least for the three main feasts, um, and, and certainly um, probably at other times. But uh, the main bulk of his ministry time, of his service and what he was doing in Israel, was spent up in the northern part of Israel. And Herod had no doubt heard stories about him and about the miracles that he'd been performing. And so now he wants to see this uh, itinerant rabbi who's been doing these miracles that he's been hearing the tales about. He wants him to show off, basically. Prove who you are, right? And that's something that people still try and ask today, right? We say, well, sometimes people say, well, if God is really God, then he can show me who he is. He can do a sign or whatever to show me who he, who he is. I say, well, sure, he, he can do that. Uh, but like, what's enough? Because that's the question I always come back to. It's like, what would be enough sign? And do I have to be the one who sees it? What if God shows a sign to somebody else and they tell me about it? Is that enough for me to believe? Because that's really what happened. Right, the sign that Jesus gave to that generation is the sign of Jonah. Right, he was killed, buried, and raised from the dead, and we have witnesses who delivered the message to us. So, in fact, he did show a sign <laughs> to demonstrate who he is. Uh, the only question or issue then is that we just many people simply refuse to believe. That's it. It comes down. It boils down to that. Uh, so often is that we people just say, "Well, if he would just show me that sign." And again, I always say, well, is that enough? Because uh, this was what happened for them, and many of them didn't believe either. <laughs> <clears throat> well, Herod was excited. He wanted to see him. He was exceedingly glad because of what he had heard about him. And he questioned him, verse 9. He questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. There had been, there had been some tension between Herod and Pilate, but because of this situation with Jesus and, and Pilate sending Jesus over to Herod and, and them sort of um, participating in this together, uh, apparently it sort of mended their friendship a little bit, mended their relationship a little bit. And these guys who had been at enmity with each other now are... Um, now are, are um, sort of buddy-buddy, at least a little bit more. Um, they became friends with each other uh, because of their, um, their the situation with Jesus. So Jesus still bringing people together. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they were going to let him die. But uh, <laughs> uh, then, verse 13, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. That phrase is interesting that Luke says it was necessary. This was a, a tradition that had been developed over time, that at the feast of Passover, uh, when, if they were going to uh, have an execution, that they would allow one of the criminals to be released as sort of um, 
a gift, if you would, for Passover. <laughs> okay, and uh, so at this time they were going to release one of the pre one of the um, criminals, one of the uh, people, and um, so at this point Pilate is like, let it be Jesus. Let's release him. I'm he, you know, he's not done anything that's obviously bad enough for me to feel like I can put him to death. So uh, let's just chastise him, maybe um, you know, beat him. Whatever they've already done that some the religious leaders have and the um, the other leaders in Israel have, including the uh, soldiers and stuff when they were mocking Jesus after he'd been um, taken over to Herod, um, uh, they also um, mocked him. Um, now Pilate is saying, "Let's uh, let me just let me just beat him essentially, and then let him go instead of kill him, instead of put him to death." Um, because of this tradition of letting one of the criminals go. Verse 18, And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. I've always found that, as soon as I learned it, fascinating. that Because his name, Bar-Abba, means son of the father. And I always have found that amazingly fascinating. <laughs> this criminal's name is the father's son, or son of the father. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what Barabbas means. And, uh, and of course, Jesus is son the father the son of god you know um but they're releasing the wrong son of the father if we could say it that way right uh, they uh, asked for barabbas to be released and that's interesting too because like think about the things they were accusing jesus of and the religious leaders are accusing jesus essentially of blasphemy at this point they had tried to accuse him of um sort of this insurrection or rebellion against the roman leadership because they're trying to get the roman leaders to put him to death right um <clears throat> but this other guy barabbas Verse 19 says, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. This guy's a murderer. <laughs> he had been put in prison because of a particular rebellion and for murder. Right? And they're saying, let that guy go and kill Jesus. Interesting. Also, uh, Barabbas becomes uh, the example of us. The example of me. Right? I am released as a son of the Father now because Jesus is put to death in my place. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I'm the murderer because I have harbored anger in my heart. I have shouted, You fool, I am guilty. And he has taken my place. This is the only entrance into the kingdom of the heavens. It is through Jesus alone. And this is true for me and for you. It's true for your children, for your co-workers and your friends, for your relatives, your brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. It's true for all of them. And it's great news. You imagine after all of the people who've died from coronavirus, how that we have something that seems to be helping uh, many people survive the coronavirus. When people say, "Well, you say there's only one thing that helps," <laughs> you know, I'm not going to take that thing. You know, like, okay, <laughs> it's fine. 
but we're all dying from whatever. And there is a way for you to be rescued. A way. And because we love our sin, so many people are saying, nope, I don't think so. I don't want that. I won't believe that. Whose eyes the God of this age has blinded, Paul tells us. It is a joy to know that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But I have to challenge myself and wonder, Lord, am I, what am I doing with my time? What am I doing? How can I be helpful? How can I be beneficial to the lives of the people around me with the time that I have? Um, the time is short. Oh, they demanded that Barabbas be let go. Yeah, he, he was guilty of rebellion and murder. They wanted Jesus. Pilate, therefore, verse 20, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. This is another problem that we find prevalent in a lot of the leadership in Israel at the time. This thing called the fear of man. They refused to stand up and do what was right because they were afraid of the responses of the people and what it would cost them. The same is always true for you and for me. The fear of man is a trap, Solomon said. It's a snare. It will catch you and bind you and prevent you from being able to do the things that God would have you to do. It would lead you into sin and catch you and hurt you. Don't let the fear of man be your guiding force in your decision making. They demanded with loud voices that he be crucified. The voices of these men, as we read, and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. A couple of things here, really quickly. Obviously, all of this is known from eternity past. God knew what was happening and what would happen before it did. He stands outside of this continuum to which we are bound. He delivered Jesus to their will. That is poignant to do what they wanted to with him. Was it God's will? Was it their will? (laughs) Yes. That's the answer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This mystery of how God in, in his infinite reality And his desire, his will, somehow meshes together with our ability to make choices. Limited as they are, make no mistake, I think it's foolish to suggest that we have a free will. 
I say that in this sense. Most of our decisions are bound by something. <laughs> bound by our fears. <laughs> bound by our abilities. <laughs> bound by our histories. Bound by the secret things inside of us that happen to us as children that we don't even think of sometimes. M most of our decisions are bound by something. <laughs> but to suggest that we make no decisions, I find no reality there. We do make real decisions that are true and have consequences, therefore, because of those decisions. But many of our decisions are bound in many ways. <clears throat> they released Barabbas. They delivered Jesus. He delivered Jesus to their will. Um, Peter picks up this idea in one of Peter's letters of how you as a Christian can suffer evil when somebody does evil to you. When someone um, speaks evil against you or does evil to you. That instead of, instead of fighting back and defending ourselves, Peter says we can set a different example of suffering even when you are falsely accused of something, we can set a different example of suffering. Well, one that Jesus said, who was led as a, and as a lamb to its shearers, he opened not his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself from any of their false accusations. He trusted the Father to do what was right. But listen, here's the hard thing about that and, and me. <laughs> what happened to Jesus when he did that? He died. He suffered and died. <laughs> right? Here's what I want to, to move from our understanding is this idea that if you choose to do what is right, and even when you suffer well and you, you, don't, you don't bite back and fight back, and God is your justifier, and he, he, he keeps you, and you trust in him, it doesn't mean that you're not going to die because of the false accusations. <laughs> Maybe you will. Maybe you'll suffer. But I want to ask you this again. What Jesus are you following? I'm afraid that so many of us have been deceived into following a fake American prosperity Jesus. with smiles all around and happiness and abundance and prosperity. Oh, oh, this Jesus is just the American way. That's all he is. That's, that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. He suffered and died, and it is enough for a servant that he be like his master, but most of us haven't believed that. We've been looking for something else from him. He's promised us resurrection. <laughs> Make no mistake. He wins. <laughs> he overcomes death. This is what makes it so marvelous, so wonderful. Not that he, not that he doesn't allow us to suffer, but that he, he brings life through suffering. That he redeems, that he purchases the thing that all of the world is running away from and hates, but we're all subject to. 
<laughs> that he transforms it, just like one day he's promised to transform our lowly bodies. I think it's a good way to think about your body, by the way. <laughs> this is a lowly one. It's just a tent. It's temporary, and you're living in it now, but, but not forever. This tent will one day be transformed into an everlasting dwelling place for you and me. He has gone before us to prepare a place for us, he said. And so I wonder for myself, Jason, who are you following? Are you following the Jesus of the scriptures? Or are you following the Jesus of the American church? Because sometimes they're not the same person. How will I know? <laughs> It's real. It's real simple. Read your Bible. <laughs> read your Bible. <laughs> That's how you'll know. Read your Bible, and when you've finished reading it, read your Bible, and then after you're done, read your Bible. And when you think you've read it enough, read it again, and then read it again, and then keep reading, and then and then after that, read it some more. Dwell with Him. Ruminate on the Scriptures. Meditate on them. Think of them. Think of the Word of God. Ask him to reveal himself to you through the scriptures. <laughs> now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. It's Simon from um, Cyrene. Now, keep in mind that they would, never have, they would never have pronounced a kappa as a C, by the way. In uh, in Greek, <laughs> uh, uh, word is uh, more like kurenaios. Um, he was um, from this area. He was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. There's additional detail related to that in Matthew and Mark's writings. I'll leave that for those parts if you want to go back and, and read over them. A great multitude of the people followed him, and women also who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Can you imagine this? Jesus, on his way to be crucified, they're crying for him. They're weeping and mourning and lamenting. And Jesus turns and he says to them this, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And I, I wonder if maybe that same message is still applicable now for us and for our states. <clears throat> For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? This is certainly a direct statement that Jesus makes to them about the coming judgment that was going to fall. Remember, it's, it's, all, it's about 40 years later in in AD 70, when the Roman general Titus Vespasian goes through that area, and as he's conquering with his armies, um, he destroys um, much of Israel and the temple itself eventually in the city of Jerusalem. And the Jews are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Many of them try to fight back and rebel, and there's this uh, story about what happens on the mountaintop called Masada. Um, um, but anyway, so... Um, 
there's judgment coming. And so Jesus' warning applies very directly to them, right? Do you hear his warning? This will be a terrible thing that's falling on you. And so Jesus is being led away to be crucified, but he's saying to them, hey, you guys, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children, because that's who's going to suffer. The days are coming in which they'll say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never born, breasts which never nurse. I think certainly if you have children, the idea there is, I don't want to see my children suffer like this. That's the idea, right? They'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? You get the image there, right? If you've ever tried to go camping and start a fire, you take some green wood with a lot of water in it, it's hard to start your fire, <laughs> right? You need something dry because that type of kindling burns much easier, much faster. It doesn't have to, the water doesn't have to be burned out of it first, right? <clears throat> Verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, <clears throat> which is the word for skull, the place of a skull, that's also called Golgotha. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. I think at one time we wanted to make a church called Skull Church. I think I remember that wanting to do that, you know, like Calvary Church, but just use skull. <laughs> but, you know, anyways. <laughs> uh, there, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. You get the picture that's being set here. Jesus in the middle, these two criminals, one on his left hand, one on his right hand. They, then um, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. That practice of kind of like uh, rolling dice. It was a a game of chance that they used frequently in um, biblical times. uh, That they used frequently in order to make decisions about something. They left it to chance. Because as Solomon said, the lot is cast into the lap. But as every decision is from the Lord. (laughs) Because with God there is nothing left to chance. He's in control of everything. Um, so they cast lots for his garments and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers sneered, uh, rulers with them sneered saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah, the chosen of God, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah, the chosen of God. In fact, it is because he is the Messiah and because he will save others that he refuses to save himself. I want to draw some more application from Jesus' suffering here shortly, but I want for us to sit in it for just a minute here, because there's depths here that I'm not sure that we know how to plumb of how and what he suffered. It isn't just the physical suffering. Many people were crucified. Many people were beaten and mocked. Many people have suffered great things. It's not just that. There's something different happening here as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Not only the people looking on, but now the soldiers say the same thing. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Call your armies to help. And Jesus, 
earlier on in the Garden of Gethsemane, reminded his disciples that he could do just that. Hosts of angels at his very beck and call. And he submits himself to this torture and death. And he does so because it is the will of God that he become the substitute for our sin. The heavenly things, the author to the Hebrews reminds us, must be cleansed with better things than the blood of bulls and goats. <laughs> the precious blood of the unique one, the Son of God, born of a virgin, the seed of a woman to crush the head of that serpent. This is what was always promised, even from the very beginning. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him as we read and said the same thing. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38, an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew so that anybody who passed by in that area would most likely be able to read it. This is the king of the Jews. The other gospels record for us. There's a little bit more information. It says this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. There's an interesting way that that's written in Hebrew. Uh, I won't go into that a, a whole lot to, uh, right now, but the beginning of each letter is Y, or each word is Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. Um, when you write out Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's fascinating because that's the name. <laughs> Y-H-V-H, just those consonants. Then one of the criminals uh, who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. This is a recurring theme. Everybody's like, save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, they believed obviously that the Messiah had the power to do this. So they said, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. Then one of the criminals, oh, sorry, I read that, verse 40. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. This is, by the way, that is such a wonderful mark of, like, at least the beginning of what I think of as repentance. When you're willing to look at the punishment you've received for crime, for your crime, and to say, I deserve this. When we begin to understand our sin and to say about our sin, I deserve the judgment against me for my sin. I think this is such a healthy and important point for people to come to. And this is why God gave the law to make sin sinier, right? To magnify sin so that we would know what exactly was rebellion, that the grace of God would be magnified in rescuing us from our rebellion, in rescuing us from sin, from our sin. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen, if you don't understand how this is such a great statement of faith, I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus is dying right next to this guy. And he is still willing to believe. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a shocking statement of faith. How can he believe that this man has a kingdom? How can he, what is he thinking? <laughs> Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
this man says. And as it's been taught before, so I want to remind you, this illustration is one of the reasons why we, we can't go around saying that in order for somebody to be saved, they must also be baptized in water, right? Nope, don't have to be. This guy is rescued. Jesus didn't say to him, sorry, I would remember you in my kingdom, but we can't get off the cross and get baptized first. So sorry, bro. He didn't say anything like that, obviously, right? Uh, his response is itself um, incredibly revealing to me. Jesus said to him, verse 43, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in, oh man, paradise? Par- paradise? What is paradise? <laughs> paradise is <clears throat> paradise is a garden today you will be with me in the garden Oh, what does that make us think of? Well, that brings us right back to the very beginning. To the promise and right to the end of a new garden. A new tree of life. This is fascinating and wonderful to me. Today you will be with me in paradise. What is it that God has in store for us? I don't know all of it, but I promise you that it is worth it. Don't lose sight of that day to day, moment by moment, because life can be paralyzing. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. For three hours, darkness over the earth. Six hours is noon, ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So from about noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was torn into. That itself is a sermon on its own. The veil being, when you think of a veil, frequently we think of like a bride's veil, right? Like this thin little thing you can see through. That's not the veil in the temple. The veil in the temple is like a really thick comforter, (laughs) but it's enormous and it covers the one big open room. It splits the one big open room inside the temple into two separate rooms, a smaller room called the holy place or the most holy place or the holy of holies and the, or the most holy place in the holy of holies versus the other part of the room. Okay. And that most holy place or the holy of holies was the place where the ark of the covenant would have would have been kept that's where the high priest goes once a year at uh, the day of atonement on yom kippur to offer blood for the nation itself um so uh he could only go once a year but nobody else could ever go into that particular place into the most holy place and on the top of the ark of covenant was a lid called the mercy seat seat just means lid it's just a lid that goes on top of it made of solid gold with with angels with their wings spread out toward each other and god said there i will meet with you on the mercy seat between the cherubim between the angels i will meet with you so for all of israel this is how they would say god is with us he's right there he told us he would meet with us right there problem was nobody got to go in (laughs) 
<laughs> if we could say it's a problem. Nobody got to go in, right? You just had to believe what God said and believe what Moses uh, had written for them, right? Nobody got to go in there, right? Um, except for the high priest uh, once a year where he would offer, uh, where he would offer blood uh, as a sacrifice and sprinkle it. But anyways, so um, now this veil, this giant curtain that prevented people from entering the most holy place is torn in two. And one of the other gospel writers tells us it was torn in two from top to bottom, which is wonderful as if, uh, you know, when you tear a piece of paper, it tears from whatever side you're holding it from, right? So it's wonderful. It's torn from top to bottom as if the father is the one being like, boom, it's open now. The way into the holies, the holiest of of all, the way into the Holy of Holies is open now through the broken body, the torn body of Jesus. This is wonderful. And if you want more study related to that, read the book of Hebrews because it's all about that. It's fascinating and beautiful and wonderful. And all of those things are just a picture of the heavenly realities. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. <laughs> <clears throat> Jesus had told them when he talked about what you and I call the end times, when he talked about the destruction that was going to happen on Jerusalem a couple chapters earlier, Jesus told them that there would be signs where? In the heavens. He said the sun and moon would be darkened. Do you remember that? And now what's happening at the crucifixion? Signs in the heavens. Interesting. <clears throat> When Jesus had cried out, verse 46, with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the thing I want to remind you of related to this is um, that Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He surrendered it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said. No one took his life from him. He gave his life up. He laid it down for us. Not because he had to. I think in pride, in our arrogance, sometimes we, because we've been taught our whole lives, at least I was in grade school, that I'm the best thing that was ever born. We have like self-esteem stuff they tried to pump into us when we were kiddos. And you can do anything. Like, no, you can't. <laughs> Anyways, um, I, I think that sometimes we, people make this assumption that God has to save us. But I want you to know that's, an, a, that's a false assumption. Please understand that God doesn't have to rescue anybody, and he will be exactly the same and just, and true, and full of love and mercy if he saves no one. But I want you to understand that he chose to do this because it is what he wanted. It is his will to rescue sinners from their sin. I want you to understand that this is what he wanted it's one of the things I love about my marriage to my wife. I didn't force her, I don't think. <laughs> she chose me, and I chose her. 
And we have this sign up in our room that says, I'll choose you again and again and again, <laughs> because I think that's really important too <laughs> in our marriages. Um, let's finish up real quickly here, the last little bit. Um, having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Even the centurion standing by is moved by Jesus death on the cross. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They saw it, but they stood further away. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So this man, while he was part of the council, um, he, he didn't agree with what they were doing with Jesus. He was, as it's described, a just, and a good and a just man. He didn't consent, uh, but his vote was outweighed <laughs> uh, by, uh, by the others on the council. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now you've got to understand how incredibly brave this is. Everybody, at least much of the council now, has voted to put Jesus to death. Now he's dead. And then one of the council members comes and says, this was wrong. Let me have his body. Do you understand? They they were kicking people out of synagogue because they were attributing miracles to Jesus, because they were following Jesus. They were kicking them out of synagogue. And now one of the leaders is like, "I, I just can't. I can't anymore. This is, there's an abandonment, an abandonment here of his prestige. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. One of the things I love about the way this is written and the fact that it's written here for us is the reminder that um, at the time this was written, there were people around who both um, both knew some of the people involved in these stories or knew relatives or other people who were involved in these stories. And so they could have asked them uh, about the, the reality of these things. That's why I'm thankful for the names. I'm thankful for the time frames that are given. Those are really important and would have been important in the first century as well. They took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Did you hear that? They observed the tomb and how his body was laid. The women who traveled with him knew where he was buried. That's pertinent because eventually people have now said, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Blah, blah. They loved this man. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they traveled around with him for three years of their lives. Like, <laughs> They knew where he was buried. <laughs> they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Last verse. And they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on Shabbat according to the commandment. I can't imagine what that took them. Like, what restraint. <laughs> They got everything ready for his embalming in the way that they did it at the time in Israel. Um, 
but the the next day was Shabbat, was Sabbath, and they weren't you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So they had to wait. I know they didn't know it at the time. I can't imagine what that kind of waiting would have been like. There are things in your life that you have to wait for, wait through. But on the other side of this waiting, I imagine on the other side of this waiting at least, they couldn't have, they couldn't believe their eyes. <laughs> They thought they were going to embalm a dead body. <laughs> oh, but he's alive. <laughs> Thank the Lord for Shabbat, <laughs> for Passover, or for, for the Sabbath, right? <laughs> they waited, and now they're not going to embalm a dead body. They think so, <laughs> but they're not. Now there's resurrection. And the same has been true for me in, in certain things where God has made me wait. There have been times where I've waited, and waited and waited and waited and waited and, and waited <laughs> and waited uh, like for children <laughs> and then even when we got pregnant with our first one still having to wait longer to have children here with us <clears throat> oh but what joy <laughs> and God has kept his word to us um, I want to wrap up with this thought, and then I want for us to um, come to the table together. If you guys can help each other, if we need to, if somebody needs somebody to grab something because you got babies and stuff, let's help each other. But um, I I want to encourage you to read um, Peter's letter. Read First Peter. Peter talks about suffering well because. Uh, we have somebody who set an example for us, our king, the one that we're following. And again, I ask you, who are you following with what you're looking for in your life? Whom are you really after? Whom, whom are you following? Who are you following? <laughs> one day I'll learn how to speak properly, I'm sure. That's probably not true. <laughs> it's been long enough. Um... Here's the other thing I'd like to encourage you to do this week. I was going to read them, but we're, we're short on time. So I want to encourage you to read over once more Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Two um, immense prophetic passages written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Detailing for us his suffering on the cross. His accomplishment there. See, I think for you and I as believers, Jesus sets something very different for us, a different thing for us as it relates to this, to the reality of death. The world views death as the end, doesn't it? We work and work and work and live and live and live and accomplish and accomplish and do this and do that until we die. And then that's it. And that's whatever. You, no matter what people believe about the afterlife, Still, it seems to be the same. Death is an interruption to what we want. But it is fascinating to me that um, one of the gospel writers, it very well may have been Luke, I don't recall right this moment, one of the gospel writers says that when Jesus was speaking to um, Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were talking about his death that he would accomplish on the cross. And I think that's incredibly um, apropos, it's fascinating 
think of Jesus' death as an accomplishment. And then I internalize that concept because I'm following Jesus. I'm wanting to follow Jesus. Sometimes failing miserably, uh, but still he's patient with me. (laughs) And I think, what if I viewed my death as an accomplishment? Not a thing to be feared or a thing to run from but an accomplishment. How could that be true? Well, if I've already abandoned my life to him, then I've already died in that sense. As Paul would say, I die daily. (laughs) And Paul would say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but the Messiah. The Christ lives in me. This is what it is to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And some of the things that I'm afraid we are taught by the community around us are different than what we see when we put our eyes on Jesus. So again, I ask, who are we following? (laughs) Make no mistake, he's a risen king. He's been resurrected. And calls us to follow him, to march together with him. Here's my my last little bit of application, and it applies to uh, marriage, but not just marriage. It applies to relationships. So, here's your relationship advice. What if, in our relationships, as we follow Jesus, we did what he did? We do what he did? What's that? When Jesus was being ridiculed and mocked and falsely accused and beaten, when he was suffering, when he was hanging on the cross and dying, when people were offending him, (laughs) brutalizing him, really, Jesus neither ran away nor did he fight back. Those are always our responses, aren't they? Fight or flight. When our spouse does something wrong to us, when our children offend us, our coworker or whoever, it's fight or flight. We fight back or we run away in one way or another. What if we learned to patiently suffer and to absorb the hurt and then to forgive, to release people. What if we did that in our marriages? Man, I think maybe it would would help develop, cultivate some healthiness there.
This is what Jesus did for us. He neither fought back nor did he run away, but he absorbed the hurt and he forgave us. He released us from the debt. Um, I'm not ever going to give an excuse for somebody to be abusive to another person in a relationship. You let me know and I will fight them. It's not what I'm talking about. This type of attitude doesn't become an excuse and doesn't become, um, doesn't give somebody liberty um, to abuse or to hurt. No, and that's not the intent here. Um, <clears throat> but the fact is, we've already been hurt and abused. Many of us in one way or another. And I think releasing forgiveness, oh, it's something we need to do. There are horrifying things that have happened in the world and to some of us. Oh, but Jesus would heal us, I think. And I think he's at work doing that very thing. Um, <clears throat> so, that being said, the night that um, Jesus was betrayed, after supper, uh, he took the bread. And he took the cup and he started this thing that churches across the world have practiced since then until now. Remember last week I told you these two practices, these two traditions that we have held on to as the church that do the very thing that Paul taught. They proclaim to us the very message that Paul said is the gospel. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And that's in the Lord's table in communion and in, um, in water baptism, right? It's like resurrection from the dead, right? So in doing these things, we proclaim that message that has always been from the beginning by which people are saved. This is the foolishness that the world looks at and said, that's really stupid. You mean all I, all I need to do is, is put my trust in the fact that in, in you saying that Jesus died for my sin and that he was buried and raised from the dead and God will rescue me? That's so stupid. Isn't there something I need to do, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the answer is nope. <laughs> you trust him. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's the thing. You, you believe him. But to a world that says, no, 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 I can accomplish this. That looks really foolish, doesn't it? It's really stupid. Well, um, if you guys would, uh, let's um, grab a cup and grab a piece of bread, and then we'll um, uh, we'll sit down and we'll take like a minute, two minutes, <laughs> to um, do this. If we can help, if anybody needs help, 
maybe somebody can pick up the tray and help pass out if somebody needs that with the babies. Yes, I purposely use bigger cups. I don't. Why do we use those little shot glass things most of the time? Anyways, it's weird. <laughs> no. I like the idea of giving you a bit more. Anyways, so you need more blood, guys. You need more blood. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for helping. Thank you. I know. I know. We we wondered about that, but I don't know. We've all breathed on each other now, so. <laughs> okay. Does everybody have? Everybody have what they need. Everybody have some bread. Have some some juice. It's sparkling juice, just so nobody's surprised. It's I'm just. It's my my compromise between regular grape juice and wine is this it's like the this is the type of juice they serve at like the Jewish feast for the children they serve like the sparkling grape juice or other stuff sometimes you know so. <laughs> so the night he was betrayed he took bread after dinner and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me. So let's give thanks and then we'll um, eat the bread together. Um, Father, we give you thanks for the broken body of Jesus. Let's eat the bread together. Father, I'm so thankful that his, the body of Jesus was broken. That it's by his stripes that we were healed. Lord, would you continue to work that out in our lives? All the way to its completion when we see you face to face. Please, heal us, Lord. In the same way, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That reminds us of that Jeremiah 31 passage we talked about a little bit last week, and I encourage you to read right about verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Right, Because the new covenant... In Jeremiah 31, the Lord said, I'm going to make a new covenant that what's not like the old covenant. The old covenant was, here's a list of things. If you do these things, you'll live. That was the old agreement, which Israel failed, <laughs> right? And we, we failed to. Um, but the new covenant um, is different, where he says, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I will just wash them away in, in the blood of a Savior. 
because he's loved you. He washes your rebellion away. Man, that's good news. For no other reason, they just want, he wants to. He wants to do that. <sighs> Father, we thank you so much for the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Let's take the cup together. Let's... Father, as the, this little piece of bread and this little bit of drink enters our bodies and the particles provide nourishment, even as little as it be, to our physical bodies, it is our prayer and our desire that you, that your grace would be serving and ministering and changing the spiritual things in us, reforming and correcting and teaching and healing the broken places, Lord. Would you keep doing that? Please. Do it like only you can, Lord. It is you that we need. It isn't for all the circumstances that we are anxious about to change. We don't, we don't need that, Lord even as much as we might want it. We were made for you and to do your will. And Father, I ask that you'd help us to rest in that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul ends here in 1 Corinthians 11. That's what I was just reading. Um, where he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That reminds me of, because of, proclaim is what preaching means. It means to proclaim something. And so it's fascinating because it, it links together with what he teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, that this is the gospel message, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. right? And, and it's coupled together with these, um, these services, this uh, tradition, uh, the Lord's table and... Um, baptism. So, uh, um, <clears throat> okay, you guys have been very patient. Love you. Thanks. The Lord bless you.